I've talked before about story arcs and the different types of continuity when it comes to Star Trek. And this is another one of those episodes where something that kind of has already been done and would be referenced in the future is now being officially done by the writers. In this case, specifically, I'm referring to continuity arcs or story arcs across multiple episodes. Now, the argument could be leveled that these arcs already exist. This is what I, this is what I was just referencing. However, this is now a conscious effort on behalf of the writing team to actually write in character arcs and story arcs that are designed to be followed up on later and, you know, have people look into them later. And I mention that because this is also Ronald D. Moore's baby. <laughs> and that just makes sense, doesn't it? Number one, Ronald Moore, as I've said before, I have some issues with his writing, but overall I have a lot of respect for the man. Tons of respect, actually. And I've noticed there's two things he's really big on. Continuity is the obvious one. But the other one is Klingons. Almost all of my favorite Klingon stories come from Moore and his presentation. I'm going to talk about the Klingons and Klingon culture quite a bit, since this is really the first episode we're going to start diving into that. So buckle in. I have no idea how long this episode's going to be. You guys watching this will be like, oh, it's only 20 minutes or whatever. But as of this moment, I have no idea how long I'm going to be talking here. But I mentioned the continuity thing because this is a direct follow-up to uh, the episode where, God, I actually can't think of the name of it, uh, where Riker ended up serving on a Klingon ship. And then, again, this episode will be coming up later, like I said, story arcs, setting up basically the Moog-Duras discommendation story arc that would continue all the way into Deep Space Nine, in, no th in thanks in no small part to Moore's influence on Deep Space Nine. So, right at the beginning, we have this scene where Kern comes aboard, and I just want to take a quick aside to say that Tony Todd is awesome. <laughs> I hate to say that so generically, but every time I see Tony Todd, it's like, yeah! The man really knows how to present himself as different types of characters, and I really enjoy seeing him on camera. And... He's awesome as Kern, and I don't have anything else to add to that. So, Tony Todd is great. Um, so he comes aboard, and the, obviously the, the writers and the directors, Les Landau, needs to get across the idea very quickly and efficiently that Kern doesn't belong on the Federation ship. So he struts on board the bridge and gives this whole speech, and then he chews out Wesley. This is probably the one and only flaw of the episode, in my opinion, and it's explainable, but I do still think this is a flaw, because what happens is Wesley is basically gossiping, whispering with with uh, Data, while Kern is giving his speech. Now, I don't care like if this is a Klingon or a Romulan or a human or a Benzite or whatever. That's just disrespectful, especially in the middle of that. Like, it, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with Wesley that he's just kibitzing? That's the wrong word. And he's just, while Data is even in on it. Data was like leaning in like, oh, which is funniest, of course, because Data has the hearing that he would need to do that, but whatever. Um, and just, there's just a level of disrespect there that's astonishing. I was right with Kern. I, a human being, would have also chewed out Wesley for that. Then the scene cuts, and pretty much the next thing we see is a bit where uh, Wesley is talking with Riker, and Geordi talks with Riker. Now, you can tell this is where the script got condensed, and this is, the, this is the explanation I was mentioning earlier, because Wesley now says, no matter what I do, I can't seem to please him. We don't see any of this. The only real interaction we see between Wesley and Kern is the aforementioned where Wesley was being a prat, so that doesn't count for anything. So we have to take Wesley's word that, he, that Kern has been jumping down his throat. Now, that by itself would have no weight to it. Now, intelligently, what helps sell the scene is Geordi. First of all, 
I mean, no effect, offense to Will Wheaton, but at this point in his, his career, LeVar Burton was probably a better actor. And LeVar Burton gets across, am I saying his name right? I think I am. A much better presentation of someone who is really pissed about something. Like, there's just sort of this, yeah, we've got a problem kind of a thing. You know, he just, there's a sort of bluntness to the way Jordy presents himself that you can understand, okay, something really is up with this. And then he tells us about the inspection during the middle of the thing and the double shifts they're having to work and blah, blah, blah. And both of them bring this to Riker. Now, that also makes sense. Riker is basically the personnel officer. This is something that's already been established and will continue forward in future episodes. So it's not just the fact that Riker's their friend or he's part of the clique. He is literally the guy they're supposed to go to in order to complain about personnel issues. So this makes sense. The fact that Jordy is the specific character used to do this, and one of his biggest character traits is gets along with everybody, helps to emphasize the point. It's still a little bit of a flaw because basically an entire episode, or at least like three-fourths of an episode, got condensed into those two scenes. The bridge speech and the ten-forward complaining thing, and that's it. Because, for those of you not aware, this is actually originally two scripts. One was a script about Kern being, uh, you know, being on the ship and blah, blah, blah. And the other was the, uh, the script about his brother and the discommendation thing. Moore was handed both and said, turn these into one. So again, a lot of respect for the man because this is probably the smartest way he could have, probably gotten, he could have possibly gotten this across. I'm nitpicking, but not really making any major complaints here. So... Then we go to a scene, and this, this helps sell it even more, because we are told how Kern is acting to everyone else. And then we see how Kern is acting to Worf. And these two stories don't line up whatsoever. His whole thing about, oh, yes, please do a scan about this, Mr. Worf. Ah, no course correction is needed. Very good job. And, of course, you notice Worf just bristles. And, of course wonderful acting on Tony Todd. You could see Kern's face just, like, get anticipatory. Like, he wants Worf to club him. Because that is actually what he wants. He is specifically testing him here. And even if doing it on the front... The, 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 the front? I guess back. Doing it in the middle of the bridge with, with in front of God and everyone is totally fine with Kern because he's not actually interested in being legitimately dishonorable. He's just testing him. Remember, and I've talked about this many times, uh, and I believe we've already started discussing this over on the Deep Space Nine stuff, Klingons are all about how you react to things more than the things themselves. It's all about that reaction and how you present yourself. It's kind of a, a two-step form of communication that they use. So the way everyone's reacting to Kern is informing him of how he should de develop and present himself. This also leads to a wonderful scene, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in this episode. By the way, I love this episode, it's not obvious. It's the dinner scene. So, I love the dinner scene because anybody who understands or knows Klingons knows that Kern is being incredibly polite for a Klingon. He is, oh yes, he just, he's just making small talk. I had to restrain myself from killing Commander Riker earlier because I perceived it was an insult. Now, in human culture, in most human cultures, that would be like, whoa, dude, what's wrong with you? But in the Klingon culture, that's just something that's true. Because they it's even on topic, because they were just talking about how Kern was having trouble fitting in with a Federation lifestyle. And he gives a direct example of, yes, this was another thing I had to deal with. It was very difficult. And he even, I, I look forward to trying your replicated burnt bird meat. You know, the way he does it, again, Tony Todd's awesome. 
the way he does it and the way he presents it and his attempting of the caviar and smearing the caviar on the turkey and all that. It's, it's just, it's all good stuff. I do have to address one quick aside here. Now, this is entering the realm of pure speculation, but that's kind of my job. Once upon a time, I had a very long discussion with a friend named Joel, who we were discussing the nature of Klingon biology. Hear me out. If this sounds boring, just skip forward a couple minutes. I'm sure I'll be done relatively soon. The idea was that the Klingons, from a physiological perspective, are far stronger and more durable than a human being, but demonstrably less engaged when it comes to their intellect, their brain. Now, I'm not trying to say Klingons are stupider, but Klingons are stupider, on average, than most other races, especially humans. Now, to clarify that statement, though, when I say stupid, I do not mean that as an insult. I mean that as a demonstrative fact. Their ability to reason and think is simply on a lesser level. They think in different ways. They don't go as complex. They don't take in as much info, and they don't put out as much in info. Most of what they do is on a more simplistic level, hence stupider. And again, no insult intended. And obviously there's going to be exceptions in both directions. We've seen stupider humans and smarter Klingons. But the theory here is the idea that it's literally the nature of their digestion and the way their physiology is that leans itself in this direction. Now, this is pure theory, and this is also a few years old, so feel free to make fun of this. Uh, I think I brought this up once before, but the idea is that one of the reasons... This is theory again. One more asterisk. The theory is that we as human beings consume cooked food, which enables us to basically get more efficiency out of the resources that we pull from that food. The cooking actually adding to the nutrition, basically. That enables us to put, take in far greater amount of nutrients and resources, and the theory is that a lot of that goes right up here to our brain and allows our brain to function in the ludicrously advanced nature that it does in order to make us be human beings, right? As has been pointed out many times, and I think I talked about this during the Matrix uh, rumination, even a stupid human is amazingly intelligent, and their brain is incredibly designed when it comes to how they function. They're just stupid by the, the standards of rest of humans, right? So I mentioned that because the idea is that the Klingons eat raw food for the most part. In fact, in many cases, the Klingons eat still living food or still moving food. Now, I point that out because... The idea here is that, that the, the physiology of the Klingons is, is developed in two different directions. One, to take in anything as food, being basically more omnivorous than a human is. Even though humans do qualify as omnivores, we are not as omnivorous as, for example, pigs. So, you know, the idea that a Klingon has a digestive tract a little closer to a pig's, the ability to, and again, no insult, the ability to take in just about anything and actually use it as functional resources and because it's designed more in that direction, instead of requiring cooked food or even being acclimated to cooked food, they take in whatever food, and thus they can't get as much efficiency out of that food, so all of that is diverted to slightly different directions. In other words, more of it towards their muscle and their immune, uh, immune system and metabolic rate, um, which isn't a singular thing, it's actually multiple things, but you get the point. Basically, getting more, for lack of a better way to put it, if I was to put this in layman's terms, getting more physical nutrition out of food rather than mental nutrition out of food because more of it goes to their body than their brain. Make sense? I mention this here because 
Obviously, taste is a thing, and many people like different tastes. I mean, can you believe there's people who actually like black licorice? But in all seriousness, though, obviously, even amongst the same species, human beings have a wide variety of tastes. So the fact that he just spits out the turkey isn't really a big deal. But again, they do discuss the dietary requirements and variances, and how they actually are trying to get him to try a variety of things to see if there's anything there that might actually be something he can acclimate towards, and the nature of Klingon food and how different it is. This is why I bring this up. I've been kind of waiting to talk about Klingon stuff for a while, so please forgive me, because even though we've had two Klingon episodes before this, this is the first real Klingon episode in TNG, where they really start digging into them as a people. So forgive me for going a hog wild here. So, Kern is super polite during dinner. It's actually quite funny. And then uh, it gets to the point where they're, you know, they get past the dinner, and he gives just the most obvious insult to Worf. This is a continuation of his earlier thing. So we can infer that he is being very polite and condescending to Worf, and yet when it comes to everyone else, he's being basically his normal self, abrasive and uh, just, you know, you need to do this, the end. You know, very strict, militant command style. Now, I point that out because at the dinner table, you can tell he's taking a different tactic. You can just feel that Kern is trying different things to make this work. And so instead of being condescending, he straight up insults Worf. Worf is actually eating the turkey, and he just, again, straight up insults him. Oh, yeah, the Klingon stomach could not deal with these, but Worf seems to have no issues, you know. Ouch. Then Worf finally confronts him head-to-head. Now, if this was all just the original episode, you know, the episode which was just about his Worf coming on board, I'm pretty sure this would have been, like, in the final act where the revelation happened, or, or you know, there's some direction, other direction they were going with it or whatever. But instead, this happens at about, and I jotted it down, the 12 minute and 41 second mark. Ah, yes, that! And the way Kern reacts is great, because you'll notice he finally provokes Worf into actually coming at him. Notice he insults him multiple times during the conversation, too. Worf comes at him, and Kern immediately supplicates. Physically, mentally, visually, like everything about his demeanor changes to being, yes, you've won this encounter, to immediately call Worf off, basically. Because he is now satisfied. Remember, Klingons are all about how you react to things. And Worf, who is the most Klingon Klingon of all, we'll talk about that this episode too, decides, basically immediately holds himself back when he sees Kern is supplicating like that. This, of course, leads us to the big revelation. I'm your brother. And he has specifically come on board to test Worf to make sure he is enough Klingon, you know, in order to answer the challenge to his father. I hesitated there because I also want to mention something, just as a quick aside of a thought thing. I find myself wondering how many Klingons in general have a negative opinion on Worf. I get the opinion that Worf is really famous or infamous, depending on how you want to think of it amongst the Klingons, because as of this point in history, he's the only Klingon actively serving in Starfleet. Now, I know B'Elanna Taurus would eventually be in there, and there's also Keeler, but both of them are half-Klingons. The only full-blooded Klingon serving in Starfleet. I suppose there's also the chick in the Maquis episode. But anyways, the point being, <laughs> the idea is Worf is a relatively high-ranking, you know, high-profile Klingon serving on the flagship of the Federation. And you can't tell me Klingons aren't aware of that. And given the Klingon propensity for... I, I don't quite want to use the word mockery, but I'm not sure what other word to use. Provocative discourse, let's call it that, I get the strong impression that most Klingons perceive Worf as just being 
a baby Klingon. He's off in his Starfleet thing. He's not even a real Klingon. And I also enjoy that. Well, there's other evidence of that. The way Kim Peck acts in this episode also kind of leans towards that idea. And I also mention that because it adds another little bit of irony to this whole narrative. That the Klingon Empire perceives Worf as not a true Klingon. That he's some old Federation baby and that's all he's got. But Worf is arguably the most Klingon Klingon that we encounter in TNG. And the only reason I have to say just TNG is because Martok exists over in Deep Space Nine. So you can kind of get the impression there and the, and the intent. Anyways. So, then we get uh, a bit further forward into the nature of Klingon and the way they function. I've talked before about Klingons and line mentality. I believe this came up during House of Cork, which I've already covered from my perspective, and I'm pretty sure has already gone live as of this point in time. I'm not 100% on that. Let me double check. Yes, yes. Looks like House of Cork has, in fact, gone live by now. I think. So... <laughs> The idea here is that Klingons have an extremely tribal mindset. Now, you could argue that humans have tribal mindset as well, and we do here in real life. There's a reason line mentality exists. But Klingons tend to take it to another level. It's not just you're on that side of the line, therefore you're such and such. You are expected to basically answer for and be answerable to everything that happens on that side of the line. You are part of your tribe, as the for first and foremost aspect of your identity. Now this also makes sense when it comes to Klingon development and culture, given how much of a time the Klingons had in their development cycle, given the way that they progressed, given how they reached out to the stars, and how they immediately found enemies, and how they immediately had to interact with everyone, blah, 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 blah. The point being, everything about Klingon development from back when they had to fight off the... Oh, I can't think of the names all of a sudden. The, the, the Herc, there we go. Ever, ever since they had to fight off the Herc all the way up to, you know, the modern era, the Klingons have been more survivalist and less civilization. Now, I'm not saying, again, that they are uncivilized. I'm not saying they don't have a culture. I'm not saying they don't have a society. But a lot of Klingon mentality lends itself more towards survivalism rather than some of the more intangible aspects of existence and, and living. Make sense? Now, I bring that up. I bring that up because this is uh, very relevant to this episode. As they mention, if Worf's father, Moog, which is an awesome ship, by the way, if Moog is proven to be guilty, seven generations will follow in basically the exact same blame, as if they were just as guilty of the crime he was. This is line mentality in a nutshell. I can just point to this example right here, if I ever need to discuss it in the future, because you are going to be treated exactly the same as your father, and his 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 father. That's a long goddamn time. That's going back to the 17 and 1800s in real life examples to use a parallel, depending on how long your generations are. I did a little math and I decided not to go into it because there's just so much variance for how long generations are. But the point being, we're talking a couple centuries. That's a long damn time to be blamed for something that someone did really long time ago. Sins of the father. Hmm. Now I also mentioned that because I love how Picard reacts to this. Now, I've talked about this briefly before, but this really is the episode where Picard shows that he gets the Klingons. And this will be the beginning of a long series of Picard really having good relations with and working well with the Klingons. And he does a very good job of it pretty much for the entire rest of the show. Now, he's already had some good stuff with the Klingons. This came up back in The Defector, for example. But... He, you know, Worf says, request leave, and Picard says, no. 
Now, Worf looks like... Michael Doran does a great job on this episode, by the way. He does a lot of facial acting in this episode, which is something Worf is good at in general, right? Say little, speak much. But um, the... I guess that would be speak little, say much. Whatever, you get the idea. He doesn't say a lot of words, but a lot of inf information is conveyed in those few words. So Worf is just... <gasps> but then, okay, right... I have been denied my right to deal with this, therefore I will just accept it. And Picard just kind of comes around and says, No, no, I'm going with you. We're going with you, Worf. You do not have to shoulder this alone. We've got your back. And I like that. This goes back to what was happened with the, the pain sticks. You remember that? I brought up that episode. I think that was in the Icarus Factor. That's the only interesting aspect of that particular episode. Because it's the idea, far more better presented, of the fact that the crew... Is part is, is family with Worf, that they are his, for lack of a better way to put it, his real family. And I bring that up because another nice little bit of this episode is the episode takes up t takes time every now and again to touch up on Crusher, Geordi, Riker, Data, and Picard, all doing their part to make sure to help Worf get through this, that they're all contributing as part of this endeavor. And it makes it clear that all of them are each an, a contributory factor, that none of them is just overwhelmingly... Well, I guess Picard is overwhelmingly involved, but you get my point. Other than Picard, who's actually the Chadich, that's later, none of them are being overwhelmed by the others. It's a group effort, which, again, kind of ties in nicely with the whole line mentality thing. Anywho, <clears throat> so... Then Kern goes down, he's like, I would be honored to be your Chadich. And Kern has a great way of speaking. God, I love Tony Todd. And Worf says, yes, but you're not my brother. Huh? No. No, this is quiet. And Kern's like, okay, wait, what? No. My Klingon honor demands it. Now, I bring this up because this is the first, actually the second, of several bits of information in this episode that indicate that Kern is similar to Worf in how he thinks of honor. I've actually already talked about this before several times, but this is the episode where it really comes to light. So we'll be talking about the difference between fake honor and real honor, which is apparently termed internal honor, or excuse me, external honor and internal honor, or something like that. Someone gave me a comment on that, and I noticed it. And I don't remember it right now, because that was actually like a month ago from my time. But anyways, there's apparently official terms that I don't remember from my own terminology. I'm just keep using my own terminology, please forgive me. About Klingon fake honor and real honor. Kern obviously cares about honor in, in the traditional sense of the word, the way that we human beings would use that word. It's about doing the right thing. It's about believing in the intangible realities. In other words, I get no tangible benefit out of offering my allegiance to you, brother. But it is the right thing to do. It is the thing that, that should be done. It is the thing that shows that I am have, have a moral imperity, that I have an ethical standard, that I am better than just a beast but that I care about you, and I'm demonstrating through action the intangible connection of how much I care about you. That's honor, right? Real honor, as I like to call it. Fake honor, well, that's a lot more about appearances, reactions, and politics. We'll get to that more in a second. But I just point this out because Kern very clearly sits on the real honor side of the equation. In fact, he can't stand the fact that he has to discommendate his brother along with everyone else. That he has to also turn his back to him. Oh, and I'm going to touch on that really quickly. I know that's basically the last shot of the episode. But the thing where they all and turn their backs to Worf, that's a great little tidbit. In real life history, being exiled was actually a really bad thing for multiple points in history because 
Well, in multiple points in history, survival kind of depended on group work. You needed to work with the team to get things like food, shelter, water, clothing, you know, protection from the elements, protection from beasts, protection from other tribes. If you, an individual, are kicked out of the tribe, you don't have a lot of options. You can be off on your own and die, or you can go and try and group up with one of the other tribes who may or may not take you in. It's one of the reasons why exile was such a big deal for so much of human history. Given, having said that, how much the Klingon culture is so ground and, and built around the concept of line mentality, of a tribal perspective, you can see now why discommendation is such a big deal. It is so big a deal, no one even offered it as an option, because it's practically the same as killing someone. The very idea that you have someone who is discommendated is unworthy of even being spoken to by a member of the Klingon Empire. They are cast out of the tribe. The entire tribe of the entire empire. And this discommendation will be a part of Worf's future for basically the entire rest of TNG and Deep Space Nine. Um, now this is going from memory because I'm not there yet, but I believe the first time that he talks with Gowron, I want to say this is in Redemption, but I'm not sure where exactly. Gowron, who is already kind of a political person, and we'll talk about him when we get there, don't worry, uh, almost refuses to talk to him. Like, no, no, you're discommendated. You're, 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 you're worse than dirt. You know, it's, it's the same as basically being castless. So you can see how much these, these, these concepts, this tribalism really matters to Klingon culture. So then we go to Duras. This is one of the only times we ever see Duras, uh, du the, the, the central Duras. We see his ancestors over in Enterprise. We see his sisters and his son in TNG and DS9. And we feel some of the impact of him in Voyager, but only a little bit. But I, me I mention that because Duras is arguably one of the most central characters, or at least, I should say more accurately, the central mm, political organizations in all of Star Trek. They have an influence across pretty much the entire gamut. I find that very amusing and very interesting in its own right. And they're almost always the bad guys. You ever notice that? Anyways. <clears throat> so we finally see Duras. I love the way that he deals with this whole situation. The, he, he, he just, the way I wrote it in my notes was he just spills over the Great Hall there as he's talking with them. And a couple of interesting things. First of all, he insults and berates Picard. Picard's response is to stand his ground and insist strongly that he has a right to be there. Then Kimpek allows him leave to be there as part of the, you know, the, the, the recommendation from a military commander is, is significant or something like that. I forget how he phrases it, but that's what he says. I point that out because, again, very Klingon. How Picard reacted determined how they perceive of him. In fact, that initial impression is probably what helped to solidify Picard as such a significant person within Klingon culture. Let's be honest, there's a reason the Klingons will turn to Picard many times in the future. And I think a lot of that goes down to here. Because again, external honor, or fake honor, isn't necessarily a bad thing per se, because it's all about appearances and perspectives. The idea of the entirety of the Klingon Empire, to some extent or another, at the very least the upper echelons. Remember, this is the High Chancellor we're talking to here. And the, the Duras and several of the other most powerful members of the High Council. This is the highest level of government the Klingons have, and Picard just earned their respect. Anywho, <clears throat> so then Duras gives his uh, accusations, and again, 
very Klingon in the way he does it. First, he lays out the facts, very simply and bluntly. Then he just starts insulting Worf to his face, slaps him, calls him the son of a traitor, backhands, actually, to be more accurate, calls him the son of a traitor, rips off his, his robe, you know, you're awful and terrible. You'll notice Worf doesn't put that robe back on for almost the entire rest of the episode. Just a nice little touch there. Then Kim Peck decides to pull Worf to the side. Now, as a quick aside, I like the actor who plays Kim Peck. He also played the Klingon general back in Star Trek V, which is, I believe, why he was tapped for this. But I also mention that because I think he's a pretty good actor with regards to this type of Klingon. A Klingon politician, for lack of a better way to put it. The way he talks to and acts to Worf really says everything it needs to. This is when the fake honor really comes to, 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 to the forefront. There was no risk to you. I wrote these down word for word. Your life in the Federation would not be affected. Both of these things are word for word quotes for him. This says everything that it needs to, because the actually honorable thing to do, regardless of external or physical circumstances, would be to respond to the charges. That's why Worf does that. That's why Kern seeks him out. And I point that out because both of those are contrary to fake honor. Fake honor is the more political angle. This is the safe person to, dis to to basically accuse of this thing because it will have no impact on the Klingon Empire and will have no change to the shifting balance of power within the Klingon High Council. As we learn later in the episode, the Duras family is incredibly powerful within the Klingon Empire, which probably says a lot about the nature of the Klingon Empire at this point in history, but whatever. And it would basically be the same as inviting civil war if they were to go ahead and push this onto the Duras family. Now that's very interesting, because this is a two-part thing here. First we have the external part, the, excuse me, the fake part. I keep screwing up my terminology. I'm probably even saying it wrong. First we have the fake honor side of things. The Duras family has a lot of fake honor. They're very powerful. They're very renowned. They have a lot of the military on their side. You know, blah, 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 blah. And they are so strident in the way that they have their support and their supporters that any kind of move against them would be incredibly de deleterious to the functioning of the Empire. It would lead to civil war. It does lead to civil war, actually. Spoiler alert. But anyways, point being, then you have the real honor side of things. Now, this is funny. Because I would have actually found it more interesting if the Duras family was actually reasonably honorable, that they were decent folk for the most part. Now, unfortunately, as we find out over the course of the years, they're all scumbags. But I point that out because they, are, they have a tremendous amount of fake honor and a tremendous absence of real honor. The Duras family is probably the single greatest example of the dichotomy between the two that I can think of, even more so than Worf himself, because they have no real honor. They think of everything in terms of the perception and the politics and how much it can get them and have no care whatsoever for doing the right thing, having any kind of ethical standard, trying to uh, treat anyone else with respect, which is another aspect of honor. You know, fighting a, a, fighting a foe honorably in one-on-one -on -one combat is something a real Klingon can support. Duras never fights anyone in this episode. You noticed that, right? Instead he tries to convince Kern to abandon Worf, fake honor approach. Kern refuses, real honor response. And then Duras leaves and allows his thugs to try and kill Kern, and almost succeeds at that. Later on, 
he has his thugs follow Picard. Now, one of the other things that's unfortunately true, and this is where the writing kind of falls apart a little bit, is Duras is an idiot. Now, he is an idiot in character. He's not just written badly, but he is a moron. If Duras, if Duras had actually murdered Captain Jean-Luc Picard, granted, this is the peacenik, you know, we, we refuse to go to war era of the Federation, but you can't tell me the Federation would take that lying down. He is threatening the political stability of his, his, the organization he's a part of's alliance with the other big power in the, in the corner because he's trying to hold on to his own tiny little chunk of his power within his organization. He is, in short, a petty, selfish politician. And this is important, too, because Duras serves as a nice contrast to Galron later on. We'll talk more about Galron when we get there, don't worry. But I want you to remember everything I'm saying about Duras for when we start discussing Garon, because I want to reference it when we get there. So, <clears throat> Picard asks to be his Chadich. Now, I'm saying this wrong. <laughs> Picard is asked to be his Chadich. That's a great scene, and I just have so much praise for it. Funnily enough, Patrick Stewart himself actually came up with the idea that Picard should respond in Klingon. And I mention that because in addition, that means there's really two people who are responsible for Picard being so good with the Klingons for the rest of the franchise. Ronald D. Moore and Patrick Stewart. Because this scene is very powerful. Worf flat out, flat out says, I want you to be my Chadich. And Picard says, Worf, I am flattered, but I am, you know, I'm old, I'm weak, I am not the person you want to pick. And Worf says, no, you are definitely the person I want to pick. And Picard takes that for every ounce of real honor that that means. It's a powerful scene, and I love it. And then he responds in Klingon. I don't remember the phrase. I should have written it down. Written it down. I used to be able to do Klingon, like multiple Klingon phrases and words, just off the top of my head. I was years and years ago. I've since lost it. Anyways. So, Picard asked to be Chadich. Uh, or, excuse me, Picard is asked to be Chadich. I keep saying that wrong. They find a little bit of additional information and go after uh, Kalest, I believe is her name. Kalest? Kalest? Something like that. She's interesting because she is another example of Klingon mentality. I hate to keep pointing that out, but I do it because I've noticed so few other people have really mentioned how Klingons think in their analysis and discussion of Klingon culture. She gives him a little bit of information when Picard goes to her, but otherwise she just refuses to respond and just says, no, she's dead, she's dead. Then he leaves and is attacked and fights back. Then she defends him because, per Klingon, now she knows how he would react to a direct challenge on himself. As I'll talk about later, direct challenges are a very important part of Klingon culture as well. If someone attacks you, even if they're an ally, that challenge has to be met. Otherwise, you are weak. Right? Now, you may not be weak, because this is the fake honor range, but you are presenting the image of being weak because you tried to talk the opponent down or refused to fight them rather than beating the crap out of them or even killing them. And because of the more survivalist nature of the Klingon culture, killing someone has a lot less consequence in Klingon than it does in most other cultures. This is also mentioned earlier in the episode where Kern flat out admits, almost jokingly, about how he had to restrain himself, not jokingly, but jovially, how he had to restrain himself from killing Riker. Because on a Klingon ship, that'd be fine. He insulted my honor. Okay. That's it. That's all that's needed. 
So, she goes to help him. Oh, yeah, she has a quick line I want to mention really quick. She says, no, no, Moog was loyal to the Emperor. This is wild speculation. And to be clear, we know that the reason that line exists is because they hadn't quite designed all of the Klingon culture and government and all that stuff yet. But there hasn't been an Emperor in centuries in lore. So the only reason to say that is, other than the writing mistake I mentioned earlier, from an out-of-character perspective, but the only reason to say that from an in-character perspective is because it's the ideal. This is probably me reaching, but I like to think that Moog also believed in real honor. Now, I have no real evidence for this other than this one line right here. We know basically nothing about Moog. Worf was raised by humans, and Kern was raised by, I can't remember the name, but another house in the Klingon Empire. Neither of them had anything to do with Moog. But this line here says a decent amount about the amount of respect Moog commanded. Not fear, not power, respect. Kimpek says something about that too. This is not how I wanted to remember your father, right? And I bring this up because I find myself wondering significantly if Moog had a significant strong, strong, strong emphasis on real honor, just like his sons do. And, if that were in fact true, it would explain the phrase, he was loyal to the emperor. Because that then becomes uh, a simile, effectively. Or, and that's not, that's not the right phrase. Uh, oh god, a figure of speech. It becomes a figure of speech. It's not literal. You know. <laughs> I don't... This, it's not literally the final straw on the camel's back, because there's no camel and no straw. But you understand the meaning. Anyways. So, then they go back. And there's this great bit where Picard, at this point, is in full Picard mode. He is fully taking charge of the situation. He brings in her. He's pissed. He is pissed about this whole thing because he has found what he believes to be definitive proof that Moog was innocent and Worf, therefore, is, thanks to Klingon rules, also innocent. So he brings in her and they go to the side and Dura says, What do you think you know? And Picard, and she starts to answer and Picard just whirls and says, Do not answer! Just barks it right at her. Do not answer. This will be seen in live open court in front of the council and for all to see. You could kind of tell that Picard already has a bit of a handle on, I want to say, the Klingon justice system, but not quite the Klingon politics, because then they find out what exactly is the truth going on. They learn the truth of the fact that it was Duras's father. And this is when the whole line mentality thing crashes into reality. See, if Duras was not a horrible person, just obviously he is, but if he was not a horrible person, it would be interesting because he would still, he and his entire family, the entire Duras house, one of the great houses of the Klingon Empire, would be complicit in treason and would be susceptible to either death, discommendation, or the divestment of their resources into the other houses because of something his dad did. That's how much they believe in that line mentality. Even though they don't necessarily believe it, because, again, line, the line mentality in the political angle is more about fake rather than real. They don't actually care that you're the son of a traitor, but they have to follow the laws and tradition. That's what they're supposed to do, right? That's what's supposed to be seen. That's what's supposed to be presented. So, Picard, I love this, by the way. Picard spits on this. He gets angry, just livid, at, because Picard realizes what's going on to the fullest extent. In that moment, Picard understands the difference between fake honor and real honor. And if I could just do a quick aside, I think one of the reasons this pisses off Picard so much is twofold. One, his understanding and respect of Klingon culture that he's been developing over the years, and two, his relationship with Worf. 
Obviously, he and Worf have a great bond together. This is something that will be a continuing trend all the way up to and including Star Trek First Contact, the eighth movie. This is something that obviously means a lot to Picard. And so you get the impression that Picard has, similar to Worf, romanticized the Klingon ideal, thanks to his interactions with Worf. To see the ugly and dirty reality of Duras and Kimpek and the high politics of the Council sickens him. And of course, this is Picard, someone who, even though he is the lawful route, will stand on his moral high ground at all costs. He just did this in The Offspring, where he was willing to, to threaten his own career and go straight to Starfleet Command to fight for what he believed was right, for what he believed was correct, for his real honor. And so Picard stands with the backing of a Starfleet captain and of the Federation as a whole when he challenges this. He he lays down the gauntlet, and then he smacks down the entire Enterprise on top of the gauntlet. I'm, I'm being horrible with my analogy because it's so wonderful how he just basically lays it all on the table and says, no, I'm coming at you with the entire Federation. You want to come at us? You want to try and threaten me with the divestment of our alliance? Oh, no. No, no, I'm bringing everything with me on this one. I am not budging. <laughs> And as much as I give Patrick Stewart credits for this scene that he deserves, I want to also give credit to Michael Dorn. Watch Worf's face when Picard just smashes everything right down there on the table and says, nope, this is a line. <laughs> it's some powerful stuff. And you can tell Worf, the believer in real honor, it means a lot to him. So, of course, we learn the truth and all that fun stuff. And then we learn that Worf is the only real Klingon, or at least one of the only real Klingons. Because Worf, without any real hesitation, accepts the possibility of death so long as Kern is spared. I will take this blame, but Kern's identity must be unknown. Kimpek considers this. Picard, <laughs> Picard is like, no! But then Worf's like, no, this is my choice, this is my life. I will lay down my life for the sake of my brother and for my kin or my name, I should say, for my honor. And then it is Duras who says, no, that won't work. He'll just want vengeance. And that's just unacceptable. I mean, why would he want revenge upon me for ruining his family name and destroying his life? Oh, and killing his brother. And the way Duras says that, I, I don't give a lot of credit to him, but the man who plays Duras does a good job of playing a slime ball because he just comes out, no, that's unacceptable. He just want revenge. Like, it's just some little thing, you know. So then Worf accepts the discommendation. Now, I've already mentioned that. I've already talked about the nature and the strength of discommendation and what that means. But really, all of the power of the discommendation can be said in Kimpek's reaction. When Worf says he will accept discommendation, Kimpek just kind of slowly breaks into this really big grin. And again, nobody even suggested it. How could they? It is actually worse than death. But Worf accepts this because he's a real Klingon. There's one final thing I want to talk about before I cut off this wonderful episode. Picard and Kern are talking, and Kern is just not happy with this at all. And you could tell this is just no. And you could also kind of tell that he doesn't quite get it. Again, I'm not calling Kern stupid. But you can tell that Kern is thinking with regards to honor, real honor, in place of all else. 
I've said a lot about real honor versus fake honor, and obviously I value real honor more than fake honor, but it is worth noting that real honor also has to be something taken in moderation, because real honor does demand that it is a good day to die under some circumstances. And that's exactly what Kern wants. It is Picard who, as a Klingon, sells to him, the name of your father must someday be cleared. Remember what happens this day. Make sure your children remember what happens this day. And the way Picard approaches him to him is not as a human, but as a Klingon, which really gets Kern's attention and respect. And, of course, Kern then has to discommendate him with the rest. This is a really, really good episode. Praise to all the actors involved. Praise to Ronald D. Moore. Praise to uh, Les Landau. This is, this is fantastic. I love this episode. And the thing I love best about this episode is it wasn't a one-off, because these events will matter in the future, and I love that. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.